we're going to look tonight at Paul and Barnabas being sent out of Antioch, which is roughly here. And there's two cities named Antioch there in the book of Acts. This is Antioch of Syria. And there's also an Antioch up here, Pisidia in Asia Minor. And so this is the Mediterranean Sea. Down here would be the, you know, the Jordan River and the Dead Sea and Israel here. Uh, now, Paul had gone up here. And then we had the missionary church up here that we'd studied about. The first church in Jerusalem was down here. Now, this is the main focus of the rest of the book of Acts, is the missions work that's coming out of Antioch of Syria. There's another Antioch up there, but that's a different one, and they can be confused. It's kind of like when you, uh, say, go to uh, Jacksonville, Florida. There's a Jacksonville, Florida, and then there's a Jacksonville in North Carolina. So there's two of them. There's a lot of Greenvilles. You go to states, you'll find a Greenville, a Brownville in different states, similar to that. And so this is where... Paul is going to start his first missionary journey. Then there's a little island here off the coast, and this is the island of Cyprus. So that's what we're looking at tonight. And so he's going to start his first missionary journey, come down to this island, and then travel off this island from a city here, travel off and go up this way and start his first missionary journey. So we're looking at that tonight, and we'll read there in uh, verse 4. So they being sent forth... By the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They had also John to their minister. So he was like their uh, assistant. He helped in any way. He would teach. He would baptize converts. He would Disciple, new converts, he'd do anything that needed to be done. He'd run letters, go get food out of the market, whatever. And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bargesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. And then this man, Bargesus, that's his Jewish name, uh, he's also called Elemis, that was given to him by the Greeks, so that would be his Gentile name. But Elemis, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. So we're going to look at this uh, once again and get through this passage and look at the beginning of Paul's first missionary trip and the trouble he ran into right away. Right away, the devil was resisting him and causing opposition, and, and uh, that's the spiritual battle. So let's have a word of prayer as we get into it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word tonight. I thank you for these that are gathered here. I pray that we would be edified, would be built up, and that, Lord, we'd have a, a greater understanding of the word of God, and as a result, a greater appreciation for all that you've blessed us with, all these spiritual blessings we have in heavenly places. We thank you, Lord, that our life, uh, every detail, Every day, the ups and the downs, the good times and the bad times, that all of it, Lord, it matters to us and it matters to the Master. And we thank you for that, that you, uh, Lord, your thoughts toward us are so many, that you love us with an everlasting love. You're very much interested in our lives. One of these days, we're going to give an account of the things done in this body, whether good or bad. 
And, Lord, we'll give an account of the judgment seat of Christ. Help us to be busy just doing what you called us to do. We can't all be missionaries uh, like these men, but we can all be missionary helpers. And we can all, in a certain way, in the town where we live, we can go with the gospel too and being a missionary in that way. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, so they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost. Now, the Holy Ghost is the only one who can send. He calls missionaries, he burdens them, and he sends them. And then the church, you know, ordains and gives their approval and so forth. But they departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. So that's what they did here. They're coming off of a coastal area here, sailing the Mediterranean Sea and coming to Cyprus, and they're going to come to a major city here. And when they were at Salamis, that's a major city, they preached the word of God. And so where they, where they went to first was actually the home country of Barnabas. So he's going to a place that's very much familiar to him. And uh, he would have had the advantage there. He was on the home turf, so to speak. And so we know that from chapter 4, verse 36, that this was his home country. And when Paul did missionary work, his pattern was always the same. He would always go to a big city. So this here is Salamis. And, and he would go to this big city, and what he would do is he would like, he would do gospel work there, organize the people into a church, and that church would be like a, a hub or like a, like a mother church, so to speak. And from there, people would be sent out into all the villages surrounding, and they would go out and they would do the work of the evangelist, and they would go and preach the gospel and uh, it would all start at a big city, though. And then they would go from the big city out to the smaller villages. And that's been a pattern that missionaries have followed all down through the years. You start there in the city, and then you go out. So Paul, all he had to do was hit some major cities on the way, and then he would instruct them. And then it would be the job of the people, the people, you know, not the apostles, but the people, to go out and to go preach the gospel. And then... Later on, Paul would send people to come back through, like Timothy, for example, to come through. Or Paul and Barnabas would come through himself and confirm the, the disciples and would do organization and, and put them together into churches. And at this time, they weren't meeting in buildings like this. This wasn't even on you know, the, the program to have a building. They, they met in houses or wherever they could meet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because... And this was... Uh, Rome loved this place. This was one of their jewels. You know, uh, this, was a, this would be like a sandals resort. Rome had a sandals resort here. It's in the Greek. Uh, but, I mean, they, this was a fancy place to go to. And being a seaport and having all of that uh, commerce and everything coming through there. You know, they, they, they brought, like, uh, trees, palm trees and stuff down from Greece. They brought all kinds of stuff. Everything, you could find it right there. I mean, you could go there and you could find any restaurant that you wanted. You know, you'd have Longhorn in there, and you'd have all kinds of fancy restaurants in there. They had everything. They had, uh, yeah, they had Olive Garden. You know, they had Cracker Barrel. That's they, what you say. Yeah, yep. Along with commerce and traveling businessmen and seafaring men would come all the sinful delights, you know, that, that they could possibly want. Yes, it's true. Just like, just imagine like it is now. But put it back in the Roman age, you know, the first century. That's what it was. And Paul went in there, you know, with the gospel. 
And they went in there to preach the word. But you know where he always started? You know, in verse 5. See that? He always started in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, the Jews, they had meeting houses. They'd have like a church house. Uh, And this would be something that was not, you know, not elaborate, but they were nice. You know, Beth and I, we've been inside a few of them that date way back. And it was really just something to see the way it was. It was it was fairly simple, but I mean it was built to last because you can still go into some of them today. So it'd just be like a rectangular room and one story. And then in this room, all around the side you'd have you'd have well just on the sides here, you'd have seats like this. So made out of stone. And the nicer ones. And they were, you know, picture like bleachers or something like that. And then you you come into the doorway here. And there might be some seats back here. There were in one case that I'm remembering. Might be seats back there. And then you had uh, like a, a table up here. A lectern. And that was where they'd put the scrolls, you know, when they brought the scrolls out, the law. And then they had a room back here. And this room was where they kept all the scrolls. And they'd have the, you know, the Torah back there, the prophets. They'd have the writings of different, you know, uh, rabbis and so on. Uh, the, they'd have those things back in here. And so you'd have a person whose job it was to go back in here, get the things and bring them out, and then display them, whatever the reading was. And they followed a liturgy. So it was like a schedule that they had every Sabbath. They knew what they were going to be reading the next Sabbath. And they would read through the law and the prophets. And uh, when, when that happened, you know, they had an order of service. But once the reading of the law and prophets was done, then the men who were sitting around here, the men who were sitting were asked, you know, if they had anything to say. And so that's what we're going to see. They're going to do that. And um, they might stand up, say, I have something to say. And then they would sit down and say it. They taught sitting down, not standing up. This is what history tells us. So they'd go into the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also uh, John to their minister. Now, John, we we learn something very uh, interesting and um, surprising about the the ministry between Saul and Barnabas because of this character John added into it. And John was actually the nephew. Of Barnabas, um, it was his sister's son, and so they picked up John and they got him back in chapter eleven, verse thirty. That's when Saul and Barnabas went to the church in Jerusalem to deliver the offering that they had taken up. They had taken up a free will offering to help the poor saints out in Jerusalem, and they took it. It was sent by the elders and it was put into the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Chapter eleven, verse thirty, and then chapter twelve, verse twelve. Uh, remember that prayer meeting that was being held? They wanted to get Peter out of, out of jail, and they were probably praying that he wouldn't deny the Lord again. Well, they were praying in Mary's house, Mary the mother of John. Now, not Mary the mother of Jesus. There are different Marys in the Bible. But this was Mary's house, the mother of John, and that's John Mark, whose surname was Mark. And many were gathered together and praying. So John grew up in a faith-filled home with a mom who was a God-fearing mother, and she became a believer in Jesus and was a disciple 
of Jesus Christ. This is the home that John was raised in. And while the disciples were there gathering together in that home, Barnabas and Saul uh, had spent some time around him. And they both agreed at first that here's a good young man that we could take along with us and he could be a missionary helper. He could be our assistant. And so verse 25 of the end of chapter 12, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And so when they left Jerusalem, they took with them John, whose surname was Mark. And so we have him here and he's doing this missionary work on the Isle of Cyprus. So back in chapter 13, verse 6, when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer. Now here's the trouble. Trouble was, was uh, already brewing, and Satan had found someone who was a willing vessel, willing to be used to hinder the work of the gospel and the spread of the gospel. A certain sorcerer, a false prophet, the Holy Spirit says, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. So here's this Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet, and uh, his name there, Bar-Jesus, that's a Jewish name that means son of Joshua. Jesus and Joshua are the same names. And so he's, he's the son of Joshua, which was with the deputy of the country. All right? And so they're, they're here in Paphos, and they meet this deputy of the country, and this deputy of the country, Sergius, Sergius Paulus, was a prudent man. And he was interested in hearing about the gospel. And he called for Barnabas and Saul, and he desired to hear the word of God. So this man, Sergius Paulus, he was a smart man. He, uh, he was well off, well to do, and he was a man who was doing well uh, in the Roman world in the first century. And was known and respected. And he was also smart enough to say, I want to hear what the word of God has to say. You know, the Bible says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And uh, the Bible says that somebody who denies that there is a God is a fool. And somebody who would hinder the gospel at, uh, and the spreading of the gospel is an antichrist. You know, and this man here, he's a prudent man. And he says, you know what, I want to hear what it has to say. It was, uh, I, I haven't been the brightest uh, of pupils in my lifetime, I was a blank. Um, I was, if there was a bad decision to be made, I would make it, you know, and I just did all the wrong things as a young person, but God, but God helped me. He helped out a, a just a, a foolish, foolish young man. He helped me out by giving me a dad who told me when I was a kid, told me, he'd, he'd show me the Bible and he'd say, son, the Bible is God's word. I remember him telling me that. So, I had that with me, and I knew that the Bible was God's word, and I believed it, just with a simple childlike faith. And so, when, when my brother uh, told me to sit down and listen to the word of God, I was interested. Um, I sat and listened to it for like 45 minutes before I actually trusted Christ as my Savior. And I remember listening to it, and I remember thinking, well... I knew the Bible was the word of God, but I had no idea what was inside of it. Nobody ever took me to Sunday school. Nobody ever taught me the Bible in my home. I didn't know what was in it. And when I started hearing those things about sin and about righteousness and judgment to come, I started thinking, I didn't know that was in the Bible. I didn't know I was on my way to hell. I thought I was a pretty decent person. And I thought, well, 
If you just, you know, try your best, you'll go to heaven when you die. I was under that kind of idea. Well, I didn't know that was in the Bible, that I have the wrath of God hanging on me, and I'm going to go to hell when I die. I'm going to go right into the lake of fire, man. And I was like, I don't want to go to hell. I want to get saved. And so uh, I decided I, I desired to hear the word of God, and then I responded appropriately. But not the first time I heard it. That wasn't the first time. But thankfully, God is merciful, and he kept pursuing me. And, uh, but there came a time when I desired to hear it, and I responded the same way this man Sergius Paulus did. So in verse 8, but Elymas, now that's the, the same man as Bar-Jesus up in verse 6, but that's his Greek name. So there were some people with Greek influence in his life, and they gave him that name, and it means enlightened one. Now, I don't know if he was a part of some kind of a secret society, you know, like they have today, they have those, but he was called the enlightened one. I don't know if he had to enter into some kind of a society and go through rites to become a sorcerer. I don't know. But that's his name by interpretation. And this man withstood them. And so they were trying to move ahead with the gospel and he was standing in their way. And he withstood them seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. He didn't want Sergius Paulus to get saved. And then Saul, look what he does. Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O fool of all subtlety and mischief. Now remember, he was full of the Holy Ghost when he said this. He said, O fool of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness. So he was blinded. And he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Now, he's an interesting character. But what he was trying to do was he was trying to keep this uh, man, this prudent man, from getting saved. And you know, uh, you know what the Bible says about dealing with men? It says that we're to, supposed to try to live peaceably with all men if we possibly can. And here was a situation where Paul could no longer live peaceably with this man because this man was trying to hinder their work and keep this man from getting saved. And so what Elymas ends up being is he ends up being a picture. He's a picture now in the Bible. He's a type of someone else or uh, a nation in the Bible in this case. So in the Bible, you can study typology, you can study pictures, and you'll find people like uh, Judas, picture of the Antichrist, the son of perdition, and so on. Uh, you know, David and, and Joseph, types of Christ in so many ways. This man here, he's a type of the Jewish nation who have hindered and tried to stop the spread of the gospel and Jewish people have tried to keep Gentiles from getting saved. Saul was one of them, trying to keep Gentiles from getting saved. And as a result, God has blinded the nation of Israel for a season because notice here that it says that in verse 11, that he shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And that's the same as the Jews. They're blind for a season, 
and that's during the church age. Look at Romans chapter 11 real quick. Romans chapter 11. The nation of Israel, we pray for them. We pray that missionaries will be uh, successful in preaching the gospel and Jews getting saved and uh, starting churches there. But the nation of Israel as a whole is blinded. They're partially blinded in the church age. That's what Paul teaches here in Romans chapter 11, verse 8. And the, the Jews are the enemies of the cross, Paul said. That's what he said about them. They are enemies for the gospel's sake, but they're beloved for the Father's sake. And so God has blinded them uh, for the duration of the church age. And that's what Paul says here in Romans chapter 11, verse 8. He says here, uh, well, verse 7, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election, that's people who get saved in the church age, hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their tabernacle be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back alway. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? No, the implied answer is, is no. He says, God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. So have they fallen and they are just uh, hopelessly lost and God is all done with them? God forbid. But through their fall, that has brought salvation to the Gentiles. So back in Acts chapter 13, what you see in the book of Acts is you see God turning away from the Jews and going to the Gentiles. And so for the rest of the book of Acts, you will see a Gentile emphasis. And three, time in the book of books, three times in the book of Acts, God says, I'm turning away from the Jews. I'm turning away. I'm turning away. But he's not done with them. He's not done with them. Um, there are people who believe that he is. And it's becoming more and more popular, this Reformed theology, because it's all over the internet. And uh, R.C. Sproul is one of the major teachers of that. Uh, and, and we have not replaced Israel, and God is not done with Israel. However, they are blinded, partially, because some of them will still get saved. But the nation as a whole will be blinded and also will hinder the work of the gospel wherever they are. And so if a, if a Jewish young person living in a Jewish ghetto, say in New York City, wants to get saved, they will be ostracized by their family. And they will be looked down upon and they will make threats against family members saying you better not convert, you know, things like that. And they actually will prevent and try to hinder gospel work. That's why in Israel they spit on Christians when they're taking their tours in some places. Now, we're not to hate them. We're not to hate them. We're supposed to love them and bless them. All right. And pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It's kind of an interesting thing that the Lord makes us do that. But he does, okay? And that, so this is a picture here. This man is a picture of Israel. And you know what else? Charismatics will often do the same thing. Charismatics, Seventh-day Adventism, Jehovah's Witness, they will oftentimes try to keep people from getting saved. Uh, and, and in another case, they will people who have actually gotten saved, 
they'll try to pervert the gospel. Like, for example, let's say a person comes to a good gospel-preaching church, preaching the pure gospel, and they get saved by grace through faith, plus nothing, minus nothing, saved and eternally secure, justified instantaneously, and then they go to work. And they say, I just got saved. And they talk to a co-worker who they think is, well, they talk about the Bible sometimes, and they talk about Jesus and all this, and so I think I'll kind of become friends with them now that I'm a Christian. And they talk to a co-worker who's a charismatic, and that co-worker will try to talk them out of their salvation. It happens every day. Uh, they'll say, you didn't get saved. Did you speak with tongues? Well, what's tongues? Well, you're not saved yet. Unless you have the initial evidence of the Holy Ghost, you're not saved. And then they'll say this. Well, you know, you might be saved now, but you've got to hold out. And so they'll say, you know, if you now if you... Uh, if you fall into temptation, you know, you can just go back to church and you can get uh, saved again. And then the water dogs, the Church of Christ, they'll tell you you've got to get baptized again if you lose it. They'll also hinder the gospel, try to keep people from getting saved and believing the truth of the gospel. Now, it's, uh, that's the reality of, of things, folks. In the, in the Seventh-day Adventism, they'll say you've got to keep the law. You've got to keep the law and got to keep the Sabbath. Now, if you're not keeping the Sabbath, you've taken the mark of the beast, you see, that the, the, he's a type of all those kind of people who would try to hinder the gospel and try to keep people, actually keep people from being saved. You say, who's back of all that? His majesty, the devil. Uh, I, when I start talking like that, I start getting an attitude, don't I? But it's not because I'm being prideful, like we're right and everybody's wrong. It's because it ought to make you mad. It ought to make you mad. And you ought to be able to defend what you believe. And uh, so, so you have a Seventh-day Adventist in the workplace. Well, God help us to get good and grounded in what we believe so that we can be on the other side of somebody trying to help them out and show them the error of that false teacher. Just like Paul here. And sometimes you just got to flat rebuke somebody. Now you try to live peaceably with them. Yes, it, and, and it is okay sometimes to be angry just as long as you don't sin. Yeah. And so Paul does this here, and that kind of brings me to my, to my next point. The Bible does say, live peaceably with all men. So let's look at that real quick. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. And if you say, well, you're just talking out of theory, and you're just talking about something that you haven't experienced. No, I've, I've experienced these things, some of them. And, um, and they will actually try to discourage you. From preaching the gospel of the grace of God and doing soul winning and, and telling people that they can know for sure that they're saved. <laughs> and they'll try to put things on you. Uh, just, I can think of several cases, and I'm not going to elaborate because it would just uh, be like beating a dead horse. But Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Notice it says there, if it be possible... Uh, well, let's just start at 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. That's a great verse, verse 18. One to always keep in our thoughts. It should govern the way that we live. We should submit to this truth. It says, if it be possible. In other words, if others will let you. 
Sometimes people won't let you live peaceably with them. Uh, I want to ask for some examples in just a minute. I was trying to make this kind of a conversation tonight. But just think about it. Think of some examples as I just briefly explain this. If it be possible, in other words, if others will let you, as much as lieth in you, if you can at all keep the peace with people, I mean, give it everything you've got. Put your all into trying to live peaceably with people. If it, if it can be helped, so much as it depends on you, as much as is possible, he says, live peaceably. So, be at peace with other people. Live peaceably with all men. Some of those alls in the Bible, we don't like as much as others, right? God will have all men to be saved. I like that all. This one, live peace with all men, is a little bit harder to take. One of those ones you don't like. I mean, if you're honest. So, uh, Paul here, he hints, if it be possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. But he hints at the fact that it's not always possible. Would you agree? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. They have to. I agree 100%. They have to defend themselves. Yes. Yeah. That is. That's a perfect example. They put up the walls. They got walls all over the place. Heavy iron gates to protect them. And they're not trying to go. They're not taking the offensive. Right? They're nice to everybody. They try to make concessions. even try to give away some of their land. But uh, that's a perfect example, isn't it? He's talking about Israel in the land there. It is. That's a good one. Now, it's not always possible. So, in other words, don't think that you're a failure if you are not at peace with some people. And, and it's not always necessarily your fault. But let nothing, like on your part, prevent you. So nothing, don't let anything like, that you're responsible for prevent you from living at peace with other men. But it's implied that it's not always possible. So this is my question. Paul uh, and, and Barnabas and this man, Elymas, in that case, they could not live peaceably with that man because he was trying to keep somebody from getting saved. Paul had to rebuke him. So there went the peace. That's, an, that's a gospel missionary example. Can you think of a, an example maybe from everyday life? That we might, you know, encounter. It might be in our gospel witness. But can you think of any examples? Out of all of the history of the world, there's been less than 400 years there hasn't been a war. Yeah. There's always going to be a war. That's true. Uh, there's always going to be. Amen. With Jews, all to be saved. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, theologically, you can't always have peace because we live in a sinful, fallen world. There will be war. Okay, and we got that. We have Israel was a great example. Um, But can you think of something like, uh, because it is a fallen, sinful world, something in maybe your own personal life or in family, extended family, the work site? 
Yeah, it sure would. Oh, that's awful. Yep. And somebody like that just needs to be put down, you know. Good. Good. And that that's the only way you can live peaceably with him. Hmm. And anything else? Um, here, here's an example. What about a woman who's living with a man who is a drunkard and beats her up all the time, and beats up the kids? Should she have to live with him? Mm-mm. No, they should separate. And hopefully, the, you know, the, the goal is always reconciliation, but they should separate. Women shouldn't have to take abuse like that. So there's a good one. And criminals... They will not live peacefully with you. Um, they want to hurt you. Ray and I worked with different people in this planet, and they were different religions. Religion would have to be an act of a work of faith. Mm-hmm. So they would argue with us on different things. And they don't want to hear what you have to tell them. No. It doesn't work that way. And the main thing is, if that's the way it is, show me in the Bible where it says that. Yes. Right. If you can't show me, it's not there. Yeah. Or else they'll show you and they'll take a verse out of context and make it teach something it don't teach. But why is it we're willing to listen and learn, but when you try to talk to them, they're not willing to? Exactly. <laughs> I was going to say that. I'm not trying to judge people, but that's true. Yes. Anything else where... You, you try to live peaceably, but sometimes people just won't let you. Um, someone that has trouble with anger and bitterness, um, a lot of times they have no rule over their spirit. Mm-hmm. Some, it, it pretty much always comes to a head at one point or another. Mm. So they just, uh, yeah, amen. Yeah, they won't control themselves. Maybe prior abuse that they've, you know, and that they've had to endure, and it makes them that way. Yeah. Okay. Never. No self-control. Okay. Yeah. And some people are just you. Just got to get away from. Them. Maybe the best thing to do is just to get away from them, and let them be over here, and you be over here. Yeah. And then some cases where you might have a falling out, but later on can patch things up. You know, anything else that you can think of? We'll, we'll move on. But see, that's a principle in Scripture. And I know Paul was trying to live by it. And I know that for this reason, we'll kind of finish up with the rest of this section. Uh, so it's just an interesting passage because you have a couple of issues here where there's a conflict. One between an unbeliever and, uh, and Paul and another one between Paul and a believer. Paul and Barnabas, they have a falling out. So it says here then, in verse 12, Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, so he saw the man blinded at the word of the apostle, he believed. Praise God, that's all he had to do to get saved, was to believe the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. And then being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord, he, he, he became a believer. So this is Paul's first Gentile convert. And he got saved right here. Paul's first Gentile convert. 
That's exciting. And some people say this, uh, because you noticed uh, I passed by it and I didn't say anything about it on purpose. But up in verse 9, and Saul, who also is called Paul, from here on out, he gets called Paul in the book of Acts. So Saul is a Jewish name. Saul is a Jewish name, and Paul is a Roman name or a Gentile name. So from here on out, he takes a Gentile name. Now, uh, Ryrie and and others, uh, Charles Ryrie in the Study Bible, they would say that that's because when he was born, he was given a Jewish and a Gentile name when he was born. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. It could be, but I think it's probably because in verse 7, his first convert was named Paul, Sergius Paulus. So two of those, uh, I think he took the name Paul because that was his first convert. And I think he, it helped him to maneuver among the Gentile world having a Gentile name. Paul would say, I become all things to all men that I by, might by all means and some. So now this man believed. And then in verse 13, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, he didn't travel alone. He traveled in a team. They came to Perga and Pamphylia. And so what they did was they loosed from Paphos and they came up this way. And his first missionary journey is not as extensive as his others. But when that happened, when they left, look what happened. John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So John Mark, now this is the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. But, but he left the mission field. And he went back to live with his mom back in Jerusalem. And it was at this time that there was a falling out with Paul and Barnabas. Two spirit-filled men, two believers, and they had a disagreement as to how to handle this. We don't know why John Mark went back. It was no doubt dangerous to be anywhere close to Paul. You might get hit with a rock. I mean, it was dangerous. And uh, he was always dealing with confrontations. He might have had trouble sleeping at night. Um, It was arduous. You know, Paul walked everywhere. Imagine being outside all the time walking. Imagine what you would smell like. (laughs) You know, and living in the elements and being on the sea. He might have said, I don't want to be on the sea anymore. I don't know why he went back. But either way, he went home to mom's house. And Paul evidently did not care much for it. And we'll just look at this and then stop tonight. But Acts 15, verse 38, uh, says here, well, look at verse 36, get the whole context. Um, Some days after, in uh, verse 36 of chapter 15, some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city, where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. So they were going to come back through these cities and check on the believers and organize things. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark, his, his nephew. But Paul thought not good to take him with them. Paul didn't want to do it. Who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. So you can see what Paul's saying. He didn't want to do the work. He's not a worker. Uh, And because he's not a worker and because he's not dependable and we can't count on him and he'll leave 
at any time, you know, when you need him. He'll just go home if he decides it's just getting too hard. Uh, I don't want him. And so Barnabas was probably saying something like, give the young guy a chance, all right? You know, it's, uh, it's not easy being out here and I can all this and that. And let's just, you know, let's work with him. And uh, I, I see great potential in John Mark. And Paul just said, I don't think so. He's not coming with us. I won't be responsible for him. I won't give him the privilege of doing this when he just, just leaves. And so there was this big contention, it says in verse 39, it was so sharp, they were arguing with each other. It was so sharp between them that they departed asunder, one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. So there was a split. There was a disagreement, and they could not work it out. Two strong personalities, two strong men, and they disagreed on the decision. And it was Paul. It was Paul who couldn't live peaceably with Barnabas and John Mark. Yeah. Yep. And so, yeah, so God actually got more missionaries and more missionary work done out of their disagreement. They split. And was, was Paul right? Or wrong, I don't know, you judge, but you talk to him when we get to heaven, okay? I'm not going to say who was right or wrong, but God did get the benefit of two missionary teams now. Amen. Yeah, maybe God did it. Maybe God put that in their hearts. That's, that's true. Uh, but one way or another, the contention was so sharp. And it just goes to show you that good men, good spirit-filled men, sometimes can disagree and cannot work together. And, uh, and that's all right. So I think what they did in splitting up, they said, this will keep the peace if we split up. And then God got more missionaries out of the whole thing. And so uh, now Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren. So Paul is you know, still very much spirit-filled and following God's ways and getting somebody who's recommended from a church. And now he's got another helper, another assistant. And he went through Syria and so on, confirming the churches. So we'll just we'll wrap it up there. And next time we'll look at Paul's sermon and we're going to learn what would it have sounded like to sit in a synagogue and hear Paul preach to the Jews. Isn't that interesting? I wish I could just go back and be there, you know, be a fly on the wall and listen to him preach and, and uh, see what it looked like and what it smelled like and what it felt like to be in that room. I bet the air was tense, you know, as he brought out the gospel. And, uh, but we'll look at that next time. Any, uh, any thoughts on that as we close? Sometimes it happens with churches, don't it? Churches split up. Uh, there's a church in, in Canton, in uh, North Canton, and it was uh, one of those big Baptist temple churches. Huge work. You had an old-time preacher go in there, somebody like Don Walker, go in there and build a great work at a huge church. Lots of people getting saved, disciples, families being turned around. And then when that when that man who started that work was graduated to glory and went home to his reward, you know the story. The young people came in, put up the screens, got rid of the hymn books, brought in the rock and roll music, the King James Bible went out. And as a result, now they might have been sincere in what they were doing, but as a result there was another man who said, uh, I ain't going that way. And there's a group of people there who didn't want that. So they said, well, let's go somewhere else and start a church. In that case, I think they are justified in doing that. Splitting it, 
go over here, start another church. And today, that good old-fashioned King James Bible-believing church is thriving and doing well with people who are like-minded, and they're living at peace, you know, just separately. So that's a good example of it. All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you tonight for the Word of God, and help us to live by it. Lord, we can't always, always be thinking about the Word of God, but help us to be in subjection to it and living by the principles that we learn in it and the commands uh, from day to day. And Lord, I pray that you'd uh, help us, Lord, as we go about our day and give us wisdom as we try to live peaceably with all men. In Jesus' name, amen.